Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning and uh, look forward to opening God's word with you. Adam, Pastor Adam, good to see you this morning. I wasn't expecting you to be here, but that was probably a wrong expectation on my part. Amen. We knew Adam would be here. Probably would have been here if he'd had open heart surgery, um, not just knee surgery. So we're glad you're doing well. I know it's been a rough week and uh, happy to be here and fill in in your stead this morning. You seem to have limitless energy, but uh, apparently the surgeon's scalpel is that which has evaporated you of that limitless energy today. So glad to be here with you this morning. Um, Pastor Adam may have heard this in the past, but to one of my seminary professors, Pastor Alex Montoya, who's our preaching professor as well, he always told us in seminary, uh, gentlemen, you don't call in, you crawl in. So you're, you're here, but you didn't quite crawl all the way up here. But that's okay. We're going to give you grace this morning. You take your Bibles this morning, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I invite you to uh, turn there with me. If you're a guest here with us this morning, we're so, so thankful that you're here. We hope to have time to fellowship with you after the service and uh, as you come to join us this morning in our worship and our study of the Word of God. I'm sure if, you need a, if you're a guest this morning and need a Bible, some are available out there, just kind of slip up your hand if you need one and uh, the men in the back can provide one for you. This morning we're going to really look at just one verse, um, chapter 2, verse 13 of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. I feel like this is one of my favorite letters um, in the scriptures. I, I noticed this morning that the first page of this chapter or of this book is torn, so I've been here quite a bit. It's just a wonderful, wonderfully powerful verse, and I hope that you'll, you'll be blessed as much as I am by looking into it this morning. Let's read verses 13 through 16 just to get a little bit of the context, and then we'll pray and begin our time in the, in the word. Paul says to the Thessalonian church here in verse 13, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endure the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost." Richard Elilu had no real interest in actually reading the Bible. He was a Muslim, after all, and he lived in one of the strongest Muslim enclaves in Nigeria. Still, he did figure out one way to put the Bible to use that was given to him by a Christian. Its crackly thin pages, Richard said, were perfect for rolling joints and cigarettes. Quoting Richard, papers for rolling our own cigarettes were expensive, he said, so we would tear pages out of the Bibles and use them for our rolling papers. However, on one occasion in 1978, Richard tore a page from the Bible for rolling a joint, but ended up stuffing it into his pocket. That night, bored and unable to sleep, he pulled the page from the Bible, uh, from his pocket, and he read these words from Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see 
that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. For the next three weeks, he could not get the verse out of his head. He returned to the Christian who had shared the gospel with him. One night, alone in his room, Richard prayed, Lord God, I want to taste you like this verse says. And that same evening accepted Christ as Savior and Lord. Richard's Muslim family and community did not respond very well. At first, they expressed concern, then they displayed anger, and then he received death threats. Richard was the first convert in the community, and so it felt like a a grave threat to everyone. Local mosque leaders denounced him on the mosque outdoor loudspeakers. His own father told him that he would rather see him dead. He had to spend every night at a different missionary's house because of the danger. Richard left for another community in Nigeria to attend a Bible school. Once that was completed, he returned to his home community to pastor a church, a factory, and government workers which had migrated there. The death threats then resumed at a rapid cliff as well as acts of vandalism against his church building. The police looked the other way. Richard eventually moved to the United States to protect his wife and children and to gain more Bible training. I didn't know him at the time, the author says, but Richard and I were seminary classmates. It all started with a Bible verse on a wadded up piece of paper dug out of a pocket. The story was told and recorded by Pastor Jonathan Lehman. He authored a book called Reverberation, How God's Word Brings Light, Freedom, and Action to His People. The story of Richard Alilu's radical transformation to the Christian faith, the subsequent perseverance of his faith against vicious animosity and hate of others, and his growing maturity in Christ serves us well this morning to illustrate and illuminate the point Paul is making in chapter 2, verse 13. Paul's point is this, and I want you, don't want you to miss this this morning as we begin to unpack it. In verse 13 of chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is saying this, the word of God is the divinely powerful instrument that transforms and matures those who believe upon Christ by faith. Let me say that again. The word of God is the divinely powerful instrument that transforms and matures those who believe upon Christ by faith. Richard's story is illustrative of that very truth. This is the truth Paul is going to unpack to the Thessalonian church in verse 13. Through one powerful verse of God's truth, Richard Elulu was drawn by God to go back to a faithful missionary where he heard the gospel again, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and his life was radically transformed. The man who once thumbed his nose in God's face, once who mocked God by using pages of a Bible to pursue an idol of his flesh, was now risking his life to love Christ, to love and serve others, and to tell others about Christ and teach them the Bible. There's only one reason for that, and it is the divinely powerful word of God. Richard's testimony really is not that much different than those who came to faith in the city of Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul again records his thankfulness for this church, his thankfulness to God for the Thessalonian believers. Specifically, he is thankful for the manner with which which they received the word of God. 
Now, as Paul records how they received the word, which we'll discuss throughout the sermon this morning, he offers a very important description of the word of God. Look at the very end of verse 13. He says, but you accepted it for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you. It performs its work in you. This description of the word of God, Paul, is made by Paul, is very important to all believers for the Christian life and for the ministry of the local church. Paul says that it is the word of God that was actively working in the lives of the Thessalonians. For they were the ones who had believed, and now the word was actively, ongoingly, presently working in them to mature them and to grow them. Now, we need to look at this phrase, the word of God, for just a second. What is Paul referring to here? We know the word of God in its largest sense, right, is the entire Bible. That which God has revealed to us and recorded to us on the pages of Scripture uh, through the inspiration of Scripture. So in the largest sense, it's God's revelation to man. The, all 66 books of the Bible, the inspired word of God. But here in this verse 13, is Paul references it twice, this phrase, the word of God. What does it mean here in the context of verse 13? Paul defines the phrase for us, helps us understand what he is honing in on specifically here in the verse by stating that it was the message that they had heard from them and his team had preached to them. Look, look what he says there at the beginning of verse 13. So look at the beginning part. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, what? Which you heard from us. So here Paul's referring to the word of God that they had heard from Paul and his ministry companions specifically. And the content of their preaching upon entering the city for the very first time was what? The gospel. The gospel. Paul is referring to here, specifically in verse 13, at the beginning at least, the word of God as the gospel. This was the content upon entering the city. Look over at chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says the same thing here. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So here Paul refers to the fact that they had preached the gospel to them. Look at chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So here Paul again refers to what? The fact that they had preached the gospel to the Thessalonians who had then accepted it and became believers. In verse 8, he says it again, having so fond an affection for you, chapter 2, verse 8, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own lives. So Paul makes it very clear the word that they had heard from them was the gospel. This was the call to salvation. Paul called the Thessalonians to be convicted of their sin, to be reconciled to God by repentance of that sin and faith in Christ. They were called to believe upon Christ, applying his atoning blood to their lives by faith, gaining forgiveness of sin and redemption and being rescued from an eternal judgment in hell for their sin forever. So the word of God in this verse first at least included the gospel, the truth about Christ, the truth about his redemptive work. The truth Paul preached primarily, and this truth we know Paul preached primarily from this point from the Old Testament, while also obviously including the ministry of Christ and certainly information that was being recorded in the New Testament writings at the time, even though the New Testament wasn't fully canonized at this point. So this gospel message flowing from the Old Testament 
also links the phrase the word of God to the Old Testament as well. So Paul is referring to here a gospel which he is preaching from the Old Testament scriptures and from the ministry of Christ and through his redemptive work, some of which they may have already heard about even at this very time. And it was the word of God then as preached and as contained in the gospel that had proved to be divinely powerful to transform their lives, enabling, enabling them to follow Christ. It's the gospel that contains this power, this dynamic power to make something that's dead, right, alive in Christ. Taking a dead sinner's life, a dead spirit's life, making it alive to follow Christ. Paul had preached this very gospel to them. How do we know? Had it been effective in the Thessalonians? Look at chapter 1, verse 9. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament. Actually, back up to verse 8. Paul says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. So their, their transformation was so radical. Their belief in Paul Christ was so radical that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. So the gospel has sounded forth from their lives. Not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, so even regionally, their transformation through the gospel had spread already regionally about the Thessalonian church. But look what verse 8, but also in the middle, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Wherever Paul went, what did he find? A report about the Thessalonians and their faith in Christ. Look at verse 9. So what was the content of the report? For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So what was the key? What was the part of their example and their belief upon Christ? It was their repentance, their radical transformation, the about face of their lives. They no longer served idols anymore. They now served what? A living and true God. Not a dead idol, but now the living and true God through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the divinely powerful model that has been experienced and seen through the Thessalonian church themselves. They repented, and now they're bearing spiritual fruit. Look up at verse 3 of chapter 1. Paul says, we are constantly bearing in mind what? Your work of faith, the works now that your faith is producing, your labor of love, that how you are loving others, and your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were also now bearing the fruit of the gospel change that has taken place in their lives. Now, Paul was not done. God had brought the Thessalonians to faith through Paul and his gospel and with his companions, through his gospel preaching. But now Paul wanted them to what? To not just stay there, to grow and to mature and to be sanctified in their hearts and in their lives. Like Richard Alilu in our introduction, the, the Thessalonians also encountered stiff persecution for their faith. And they also needed to grow in maturity in their faith, to, to persevere, to withstand the persecution, and to live a life worthy of God and worthy of Christ in this present age. He was concerned about their spiritual condition. Look at chapter 2, verse 11, just a couple of verses before our main verse here. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, 
who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Why is that so important for them? Well, number one, it honors Christ. It glorifies God. But number two, that is how the persecution, that is how you persevere persecution, right? To walk a godly life, to be walking in holiness and walking in godliness. That's how you to resist temptation and resist persecution and persevere in the faith. And Paul knows that. And that's what he was encouraging and exhorting them to do. And so Paul continued to exhort and instruct the Thessalonians and how they were to live their lives to honor God. In fact, that's what the whole letter is. That's what the whole letter of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is. It's to highlight what has happened in their lives, what they are doing right, and where they needed to what? Excel still more. And that's the theme of the second letter of Thessalonians as well. And so Paul's instruction here, as inspired by God and recorded in the, in the letters of the New Testament, really became that which was instructive to them, that which was instructive to their sanctification. And his instructions then as um, captured in the, letter, the two letters to the Thessalonian church also became the word of God. It became the inspired word of God by which they would then live their lives and grow their lives in Christ. Paul is including now both the Old Testament and New Testament as the word of God, his divine revelation to man, which is authoritative and will work to sanctify their hearts and lives. Now, having said that, the word of God is the divinely powerful instrument that transforms and matures those who believe upon Christ by faith. Don't miss that. Now, as Paul begins to thank the Thessalonians in verse 13, he not only teaches them of the power of the word of God to work in one's life, he also answers a really important question, which is this, and this is going to be our outline for this morning. How does the word of God perform its work in you who believe? So we can understand the truth. We can acknowledge that it's real, and it is, and it is divine, it is powerful, it does transform. But how does it transform? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul tells us in verse 13, we're going to have three ways that the word of God performs its transforming work. Let me give you the first one. So the first way the word of God works is that it works through its proclamation. Its proclamation. The word of God works through its proclamation. Look at verse 13, verse the beginning part again. For this reason also we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us. Paul here begins, as we said, by giving thanks once again for the Thessalonian church. We see here he's referring to himself in the plural, we. He's really referring to himself and Timothy and Silas who were along with him, his ministry team. They were all praying together. They were all offering thanks for them. This is the second time Paul has expressed thanks for, for them. Look at back up at chapter 1, verse 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of our prayers. So he's already thanked God for them once in the letter. Now he thanks them a second time in chapter 2, verse 13. The second time Paul has expressed the team's thankfulness for them. He's thankful, why? Because of the how they received the word of God. He's moving sort of backwards. In the beginning he talks about their fruit and he's thankful for that. Now he's going backwards in time. And being thankful for how they received the word of God, which we've already identified in the beginning, was the gospel. He says, we constantly give thanks for you. They had a disciplined pattern of being thankful for them. A regular pattern in all of Paul's prayers is to be thankful for the churches 
whom he had ministered to. And what was he thankful for? That when you received the word of God, or I should say, he was thankful for the fact that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. This word received here is a general term in the New Testament for believers receiving the apostolic teaching. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Paul says the same thing. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand. And so they had received the word of God, a word that Paul uses in other places in the New Testament to point to the fact that they had received the word of God that had been proclaimed to them. And the word of God here was the message that Paul had preached, the divine revelation of the gospel to them, certainly from the Old Testament, from Christ, and now into the New Testament. The Thessalonians had received the word. The word had transformed their lives. But how did they receive it? Well, Paul says, which you heard from us. The Thessalonians received the word. Listen, this is important, because a faithful preacher... The Apostle Paul was faithful to proclaim it to them. To proclaim it to them. Thank you to the servant who put this here. This is critical. The word of God cannot perform its work in a sinner's life unless someone proclaims it to them. This is how the word works. And those who believe cannot be matured and sanctified and equipped in the church if a faithful men do not, and women, proclaim the word of God to the church. The word of God is to be proclaimed so that it can be heard and received and do its work. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Here Paul's talking about what? The proclamation of the word and the proclamation of its truth. So it can be received and do its work. And the implications are this, church, and, and I know that you know this and we're being taught this and Adam is faithfully proclaiming this to us. Churches and pastors and elders, fathers, mothers, <coughs> etc. must proclaim the word of God so that it can work in the lives of God's people. It must be proclaimed. This is why we as a church are committed to this endeavor. Power for God to work is found here. In the word. But there's more here that Paul unpacks for us. It's not only the proclamation, but it's the reception, which you heard. So there can be a preacher, there can be proclamation, but it must be heard. It must be received. Jonathan Lehman says in his book again, he states that God grows us as individuals and grows our churches through our ears. Through our ears. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes from hearing and hearing by what? The word of Christ. The transformation that had taken place in their lives was initiated by the hearing of the word of God. And so which the words proclaim, that's how it works. But the proclamation has a second side to it, doesn't it? It must be heard. It must be heard. But yet again, hearing alone, while vital, is still not enough to transform. A lot of people sit in church every Sunday and hear the word. But is something happening? Is change taking place? 
has the gospel been received? In some cases, as we know, it is, it is not. And this leads to the second way the word of God works in us. The first way is that it must be proclaimed. Listen, the second way is that it must be received with authority. Received with authority. It is one thing to sit and hear the word of God proclaimed, but it will not perform any work in the heart that resists or is indifferent to its authority. Not only had they received it, they being the Thessalonians, but Paul says they accepted it. Look back at verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. You accepted it. <coughs> the Greek word here is virtually for accepted, synonymous with the word for received. But as Paul uses it here, it also carries the idea of receiving with acceptance or acknowledgement that the message was true. That the message was true. So it's one thing to proclaim, it's one thing to hear, but it must be accepted, and it's accepted with authority, meaning at least at first, it's true. The word of God is true. At some point in Richard's life, in that moment, in those three weeks, what happened? In his heart, through the divine work of the Spirit and the gospel, he started to accept what? That the Bible was true. The Bible was true, or he would never have gone back to find the missionary, right? He would have never gone back. The Thessalonians accepted their preaching as truth, but it doesn't stop there. They did that in such a way as to appropriate it personally to their lives, right? Appropriate it personally to to their lives. So it's almost telescopic in nature. It's proclaimed, it's heard, it's accepted, it's accepted as true, it's accepted as authoritative. Now they appropriate it to their lives. Listen, in chapter 1, verse 9, what does he say? We turned from idols, which were dead, meaningless, nothing, to serve what? The living and true God. And so there's evidence of acceptance and truth, and authority. And look, this authority is based on what? Look back at verse 13, right in the middle. You accepted it, what? Not as what? The word of men. Not as the word of men. They did not accept their teaching, Paul's teaching, as merely a man-made philosophy or doctrine the message was not worldly, not philosophical. Its source was not man. No, the source was where? Who? God himself. God himself. They accepted it, not as the word of men, but as the what? The word of God. And look what Paul says. I love what he says here. For, for, for what it really is. Right? For what it really is. The word of God. The word of God, they accepted it as the word of God. He is the source. It was inspired by him. It was his plan all along. 
was real, revealed to them through men guided by the Spirit, but it's his word, it's his message, it's his gospel. Therefore, it was received as authoritative, and with that kind of reception, it was able to work in them. To work in them. Now, how did that happen? How did they understand it? How did they accept it as true? How was it authoritative? How did Richard, how did all that happen in Richard's life from one little piece of paper that had Psalm 34, verse 8 written on it? Well, it comes with the power of God, doesn't it? Look back over at verse 5 again of chapter 1. Because the word comes with the power, the power of God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. That, the Greek word there is for where we get the word dynamite. It's dynamos, dynamite. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among your sake. And the word was backed up by what? Faithful men. Godly men. And so the word came with God's power. It came with God's spirit. Holy Spirit who convinces the listener of its authority and its truth. And accepting it as such who brings conviction and belief. The Holy Spirit moves the will to receive and accept it as true. And appropriate God's word into the life of those who believe. Unless the word of God is received with authority, confirmed by the spirit and the power of God, it cannot work. That's what Paul's saying here. And when it is powerfully, when it is, it powerfully works in one's life. This is why Paul is so thankful in verse 13. There is nothing on earth that can bring this about. It's only by God and his power. And so let's be honest with ourselves this morning. What is our posture to the word of God? What is our posture to the word of God? We must ask ourselves that question. You must ask yourself that question. How are you receiving its proclamation from this pulpit week in and week out? Indifference? Ritualistic? Tradition? Or is it coming with power in your life? And power in our lives. Do you accept it as true? Do you accept it as authoritative? And all of it, not like the German philosophers did, and rip out all the miracles and rip out anything that didn't make sense with history, at least in their minds. All of it, from cover to cover. And do we bow our knee to its demands? If we don't, it, it won't work. We're handicapping it. We're quenching the spirit. We're quenching the word. Jesus warns us in Matthew 13, verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Take heed that you hear and accept and respond. The word of God works through, number one, it's proclamation. Number two, it's reception with authority. And here's our third way. Here's the third way the word works in our lives this morning. The word of God works by restoring the heart and renewing the mind. We've heard those words before, restoring the heart and renewing the mind. The word of God works by restoring the heart and renewing the mind. This last phrase in verse 13, it really feels like an addendum to Paul's thanksgiving, yet it really is a powerful truth we must wrap our minds around. 
we started here and now we're sort of finishing here. Look at the very last phrase again, which also performs its work in you who believe. Notice first here that Paul identifies who the word works in. He's, it works in believers, those who have heard and accepted the gospel and are born again and following Christ. The word had worked to convert them. Also, the word continued to work in them to sanctify them and grow them and mature them. Maturing them in sanctification and Christ's likeness and walking with him and producing the fruit we see in chapter 1, verse 3 and following. Verse 9, the fruit of repentance. But Paul, second, Paul uses a Greek word here that's interesting. It's energetai. It means to work. It's where we get the word energy from. It means to work, which also performs its work. That's energetai there. To work, to be at work. Focus on the energy or capacity or force involved to perform the work. So it's energy, it's capacity, it's something that's working and producing something. I don't know how y'all heat your home, but we have this outdoor boiler, which I really love. It's kind of weird. It's kind of just fun. Uh, it makes winter kind of fun. So we burn a lot of wood, but it keeps the house nice and warm, right? But the really fun thing about it is, you know, I'll go out there at night and in the dark and uh, load it with wood. There's a fire, a nice fire going in there and just shut the door. And it's heating water, which is circulating through the house. And when it gets cool, it thermostat kicks it on, the fan on, and it blows through the radiator that the water comes through. And it's just like your car. It just heats the house. But I put wood in there, and I go to bed, and I go to sleep. And then there's, so what's happening? There's this thing outside, this fire that's producing energy, right? That's heating water. That's heating my house. And I'm doing nothing. I'm asleep. I'm asleep. Similar ways, the word of God is working in your life. If you are receiving it in all these ways as Paul's talking about, you're hearing it proclaimed. Uh, it's being proclaimed. You're hearing it. You're receiving it with authority. You're appropriating it into your life. And it's working to restore your heart and renew your mind. And it does that on an ongoing, continual basis. The word Paul used here, intergatize, in the present tense. It means it never stops. It's actively, ongoingly working in your lives constantly. Now, you can quench it at times, but it's actively, ongoingly working in your life. It never ceases. And where does that work take place? Well, if Paul says, look, in you, that little phrase there, that little prepositional phrase, in you, inside you, most often, the reference there is where? To the heart and to the mind. The inner man. It works in us. I may have to save that for a different fill-in sermon. But we'll touch on it this morning. It works in us, in our hearts, and in our minds. This is where it works. Paul doesn't tell us how the word works here. What, but what is the reality or the experience of this energy, of the word working in our hearts and in our minds. Paul says this in you phrase, well, number one, it restores, it restores, it's restorative, right? I love what Hebrews 4.12 says, let's just go there, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God goes all the way down to the deepest part 
of your physical body all the way down to the marrow. So it goes all the way down to deep recesses, deep recesses of your heart and restores it. It exposes what's bad for healing. It brings restoration, conviction of sin, all the way down, all the way down deep into the inner thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how it works. It also what? Renews the mind. It, it dislodges the mind from the world and worldliness, which is an ongoing battle. And it transforms the mind to a whole new worldview, which is what? A biblical worldview, God's worldview, what he wants for you, what Jesus wants for you. It's, it's Jesus, through the word, taking what you want and removing it and putting in what he wants, his desires, what he loves. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Not read all of it, but you know verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, and that's how the word works. That's how the word works. Restoring the heart, renewing the mind, and then discipling us. Let's add that as the third way. Discipling us. 2 Timothy 3.16, a verse we're very familiar with. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. All those terms are sort of like being on a basketball team and your coach yelling at you in a good way, right? In a good way. It's profitable for teaching, for a body of knowledge to reprove you and things that you're not doing or you're doing that dishonor the Lord. For correction, for making course corrections in your life and thoughts and desires and actions and training you on how to live righteously and godly in this present age. That's how the word works. So when Paul comes back here to 2 Thessalonians 13 at the end, which also performs its work in you who believe constantly, ongoingly working in you, this is what's happening. Restoring the heart, renewing the mind, training you in righteousness. And this will be a lifelong process. Don't be discouraged. It's happening. Don't be discouraged if you find yourself back in the old patterns again, even after being a Christian for a long time. It's okay. Stay in there. Stay in the fight. God's with you. Jesus is with you, and he will bring you through and continue to grow you and, and challenge you. So my challenge to all of us this morning really is to investigate deeper how the word is working in us through these realities. Are we believing the gospel? Have we accepted it? Are we under its authority? Are we appropriating it into our lives? Is it really working in us? This is not the end all. This is not the end all. This is only the beginning. Three ways this morning that the word works within us through its proclamation, its authority, and its restoration and renewal. Jonathan Lehman says this as I close. As Michael Horton, who's a theologian, uh, puts it, God's word does not merely impart information. It creates life, worship, obedience, communion, and disciples. When God speaks, some kind of change happens always. Let's take a moment and bow our heads and hearts in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time this morning in your word. That we can just remind ourselves and be challenged by, Lord, your work through your word. Father, may our hearts be sensitive to it.
May we continue to stay in it, Lord. May you continue to give us strength, wisdom, energy, and power as you restore our hearts, renew our minds, train us in righteousness, Father. Oh, Lord, may you continue to do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name.